And if you would turn to Jonah chapter 4, we find that Jonah was not only the guy who was angry at God, but he was the prophet that forgot some of the great characteristics about God. The human mind is amazing in its power to store information. Uh, They tell us that you can store millions of bits of information, the equivalent of hundreds of megabytes in a computer hard drive. The problem, of course, isn't the storage of the information, it's the recall. It's taking it from long-term memory into usable short-term memory. That's where we get into problems. Failing to call it up to the front so it's usable. For instance, there was that Saturday afternoon when I knew it was on the books and in my long-term memory, if I were to sit down, I would have remembered that there was a wedding that afternoon. But it was one of those things. It was not in the short-term memory until an hour into the wedding when fortunately there was another pastor who happened to be here going through the foyer and he had a suit here and was able to perform the wedding, but I had forgotten about it completely. Bad news. It can even get worse. Here is a letter supposedly from a hospital when one man wrote his insurance company while in his hospital bed. I am writing in response to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a 10-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carrying them down by hand, I decided to lower them to the ground in a barrel by using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the 10th floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went to the roof, loaded the 500 pounds of bricks, then went back down to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block 11 of the accident report form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the fifth floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull, the broken collarbone. I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping till the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks... The barrel now weighed approximately 30 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11 of the accident reporting form. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the fifth floor, I met that barrel coming up again. 
This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations of my legs and lower body. Now, the second encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks. And fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks, in pain, unable to stand, watching the empty barrel ten stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind, and I let go of the rope. There are certain things about God, His character, what He is like, that we need not just to have in long-term theological memory, but in short-term working memory. In the Bible, 146 times the word remember is used, and often it's a commandment, you'll notice. And thou shalt remember these things, God would say to His people. Because of that command, the children of Israel did things or made things. They were memory triggers so that when they looked at that pile of stones or altar or when they celebrated a festival, a feast day, they would remember some great thing about their God. They would never forget it. It would be passed on from generation to generation. There is so much stuff that we know about but we don't operate in because we forget ultimately, and we need to be reminded. There's four great things about God that Jonah forgot. Let's read the story, and then we'll take them point by point. Back in verse 4, the Lord said to Jonah, remember now he's pouting because God was so kind to the Ninevites. The Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wished death for himself. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand or their left and much livestock? The first thing that Jonah forgot, and sometimes we forget, is God's control over life. We know it. It's in long-term memory. We could say, yes, I believe God is sovereign. God is in control. At the same time, we can momentarily forget that and not operate in it. I want you to look at a word that is used three times in verse 6, 7, and 8. It's the word prepared. And the Lord prepared a plant. If you have an NIV translation, it says the Lord provided a plant. I like that translation better. The Lord provided 
a plant. Made it come up over Jonah. It was shade for him. Verse 7, but as the morning dawned the next day, the Lord prepared or provided a worm. It damaged the plant and it withered. Verse 8, it happened when the sun arose, God prepared or provided a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on him. Now back in chapter 1, the Lord, it says, provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Part of God's sovereign control, part of God's provision for Jonah was not just this nice shade tree. Oh, this is great. This God provided. God also provided a worm, a whale, and wind. Part of God's provision. But how often would we count those things as part of God's provision? We would tend to look at negative things as, that's not God providing. I'm going to rebuke that in Jesus' name. Oh, but this beautiful, wonderful situation, this has got to be from God, so, oh, thank you, Lord, for your provision. We are very, I submit to you, myopic, short-sighted when it comes to God's provision. We think that only the comfortable stuff has got to be from God. Wrong. Sometimes God's provision can even be painful, though we may not like to admit it. When was the last time you had some ailment, maybe a broken arm, an injury, a handicap, and if somebody asked you about it, you said, God provided this. You'd say, no, 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 I can't believe in a God who would provide this. Paul the Apostle would. Paul the Apostle spoke about his thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians, he says, it was given to me. And the implied Greek tense is provided or given to me by God, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. God, in his sovereign control, allowed this horrible thorn in the flesh, this ailment, whatever. And Paul explains why. He said, I'd seen so many wonderful visions of heaven, I could have the tendency to be elevated, puffed up with pride, that God knows how to balance my life, knowing that if I only have blessings... Without burdens, I can get prideful. And so God has provided. He allowed this to happen by His sovereign control. It was Job, you remember, during his affliction, when he turned to his wife and he said, Shall we accept good from God only and not adversity? Now, I admit there are times when I do not understand God's control. Frankly, I don't always want to understand God's control. God, why did you allow this to happen? You don't want to know. But I've got something up my sleeve. All you have to realize is that I'm in control. Don't forget my control. Don't forget Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works together these things for good, for our good. You remember the Galatians? We read the epistle in the New Testament. And if you've ever wondered how did the gospel get preached to this city, it was because of God's provision. Not the kind we would like. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Some disease struck Paul long enough to put him flat on his back to keep him in Galatia long enough to preach the gospel to him. God provided that for their sake. Another example is David. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. So some affliction struck David, got his attention and put him back on track with God. God provided that. So my point is, 
learn to look at God's provision, not just so narrow-mindedly, oh, this makes me comfortable, this is God's provision. Some of you may be enjoying the provision of shade right now. You like it, bask in it, you enjoy it, great. Do enjoy the blessings of God. Others of you may be enduring God's provision of a worm that's worked its way into your life and has taken away that pleasantry for a moment. Or for some of you, you are absolutely confined. You're backed into a corner. You can't move. This is so confining, like Jonah in the belly of the whale. It says God provided that. All of these things God can provide. And yet... God knows what he's doing and he's trying to work something beautiful out in your life. Don't forget his control. I often like to think about how an oyster forms a pearl. You can go to a store and buy a string of pearls. They can be quite costly. You ever wonder how it's formed? It's formed by an irritation. Some foreign body, some piece of dirt gets into the oyster and bothers it, irritates it. And the oyster's response to the foreign body, to the piece of sand, the irritation, is to cover the sand with what is called knacker, this pearlescent substance, this liquid substance that covers the dirt, and then another layer and another layer. And over time, the layers that cover the irritation is a beautiful gem called a pearl. And so, yes, we know God is in control. It's in long-term memory, but let's not forget now in whatever God has provided, that he's still in control. Another thing that Jonah, the prophet, forgot, and that is the compassion of God. I'm not just talking about toward other people now, but to himself. That's something else we know. It's in long-term memory. Yeah, I know God is good. God is merciful. God is gracious. I know all that stuff. It's another thing to keep that so firmly fixed in our present memory that we operate in that. Jonah forgot the compassion of God to him. Uh, didn't take a rocket scientist to read this chapter and figure out that Jonah was a miserable dude, right? I don't know that Jonah would be the kind of guy I'd like to hang out with. If I was at a prophet conference or something and there was Jonah, I don't know that I'd like to hang out with Jonah because of some of the words that are used to describe his personality. Like in chapter 4, verse 1, but it, the revival, displeased Jonah. And then the word angry describes him at the end of verse 1. And then God questions him in verse 4 and in verse 9 about his anger. Not only his anger, but his anger that leads to depression, that twice he says, kill me. And then in verse 6, it says, to deliver him from his misery. He's miserable. He's angry. He's mad at God. Why? Because he has forgotten... For this period of time, God's compassion toward him. You know, God could have made sure that Jonah died out at sea. When that storm struck and they threw him overboard, I'm sure the sailors thought, he's toast, he's dead. Lord, don't lay this into our charge. They throw him overboard. But God was compassionate, gave him free room and board. Confining, yes. Smelly, yes. Dark, yes. Moist, yes. But still, it saved him. He came out alive, unscathed, relatively. God could have chosen another prophet after that point. After all, this is God. I'm sure there's lots of people who would say, Send me, Lord. 
And so he could have said, Jonah, you know what? There are better preachers than you, by the way. And I'm going to find one of them. They're more obedient than you. And I'm going to use them. But God didn't do that. He still compassionately gives him another chance. Go to Nineveh. Preach to it. And then here in this chapter, God even condescends to bend the forces of nature to provide for Jonah. Shade tree coming up miraculously, quickly to give him shade. But he's not focusing on how good God is to him as much as how good God is to them. He's good to them. I don't like, what about me? That's why he's angry when the plant goes away. There's something perverse about our human nature that gets us real upset when others are blessed. When God dares to provide for somebody else something that we think they don't deserve. We do. Really? You've forgotten God's compassion on yourself. Whenever we lose sight of God's compassion, we end up like this. We're miserable to be around. And perhaps you even know someone, even called a Christian, whom these words would fit perfectly. Displeased with God, angry with God, miserable. The Bible says a broken spirit dries up the bones. Nothing will dry you out quicker than forgetting God's compassion. That's why Moses wrote to the children of Israel these words. They're fitting. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Be very careful never to forget what you have seen the Lord do for you. Do not let these things escape from your mind as long as you live. Some of you need to pause today and just think about how good God has been to you. How compassionate God has been to you. Some of you need to stop and pray like David prayed. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because in forgetting God's compassion, you've become sort of miserable to hang out with. You're the kind that, oh, poor me. Oh, there's some twist of injustice. Oh, this always happens to me. You've always got a trial. Always got a problem. Rather than saying, you know, yes, there are problems. But God is so good. Billy Sunday, the evangelist, years ago said, if you have no joy in your religion, there's a leak somewhere in your Christianity. It's a memory leak. So we have forgotten God's compassion. You might want to remember this next time you're in wonder mode. When we wonder why God lets these sinners that we see, maybe flagrant sinners around us, get by with what they're doing. And we wonder, God, look at this guy. Look what he's saying about you. Look what he's doing. Look how corrupt he's living. Why don't you just come in and deck him? You're God. You could do it. Why don't you? Before you point your finger at that person, it would do you well to remember that you were once there. And God had compassion on you. And were it not for God's compassion on you, you'd still be there. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? That's what we call it anyway, the parable of the prodigal son. The kid that took his dad's money, ran away, spent it all. Came to his senses, came back, asked his father's forgiveness. We've got the story wrong. There's not one prodigal son, there's two. It's the guy that stayed back, the elder brother. Now, he never left home, he never squandered his dad's money. But he was a prodigal in his heart. He had left that relationship with his father and forgot his father's compassion on him. So much so that when the younger son comes back and dad throws a party, he's so happy his son is found. That the older son, I can see him in the corner, arms folded, furrowed brow. Dad never threw me a party. 
What's all this rejoicing over this creep that ran away? And now he's come back because he's run out of money. And so he goes to his dad and he says, Hey, I never left your side. You never did this for me. Why the rejoicing? His father says to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. All my resources have always been yours. Look what I've given to you. It's right that we should rejoice and make merry over him. For my son, who was dead, is now alive. Both were prodigal sons. And I've met many elder brothers in the family of God and elder sisters who will nurse anger because they've forgotten God's great compassion upon themselves. They can talk loudly about the sins of others, forgetting their own. When General Oglethorpe came to John Wesley, the great evangelist, and said very proudly, I never forgive Wesley smiled as he said to him, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. It's when you experience God's been compassionate to me that should awaken compassion for others. By the way, this brings up something else. If you've ever wondered, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Lord, the world's getting pretty bad. Don't know if you noticed that. Did you see the headlines today in USA Today? It's getting bad out there. Why don't you come, Lord? Why are you waiting so long before you come and interrupt planet Earth? There's only one answer to that. Compassion. God's compassion. So that more people can be born, hear the gospel, believe, be saved. That's what Peter said. Listen to what he said. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Aren't you glad, some of you especially, that Jesus did not come back 20 years ago? I thought he would have. 20 years ago, I thought he'd definitely be back. I didn't think we'd last this long. I'm glad he waited. Show of hands, how many of you have come to know Christ in the last 10 years? Raise your hand. Raise it high. That's why I'm glad. He's patient. He'll wait a long time, long-suffering When I was a a brand new Christian fairly, I was going to Bible studies at a place in California. It was a house. And it was summer afternoons. We were studying the last things, eschatology, the rapture of the church, the coming of Christ. I walked into the Bible study in the afternoon. I was a little late, so I expected to see everybody kind of checking their watches. You're a little late. I come into the living room. Nobody's there. Not a soul. However, Bibles are all around the floor. Glasses of water, purses, belongings, but no humans to be seen. Being a young Christian and having just heard of the rapture of the church, I panicked. I thought, I did something really bad. I've been left behind. My heart raced. Then they eventually came in. They were outside. They'd been watching an airplane do stunts. They came in. You know, I thought, you know, this could be a good joke to play on some. Well, maybe it wouldn't be, would it? But might scare them into the right things. But it changed my perspective. No longer was I angry that God waited so long before he came back. Lord, wait as long as you want. Get as many people saved as you know need to be saved. He forgot God's compassion. A third thing that he forgot that we often do is he forgot God's calling. Now, this is inferred from the text, but I'd like you to see it. Um, The first few verses, he's angry because God's so good. Then comes a question in verse 4. 
And Jonah doesn't answer it. I don't know if you ever read this, but it's an awkward transition. The Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Now, when God asks him that the second time, he answers it. The first time God says, is it right for you to be angry? There's no record that he answered God. There's no record, and he should have had this response, where he said, oh, Lord, you're right. I confess my sin. I have a bad attitude. Just as God asked him a question, and so Jonah went out of the city. As if in a huff, I'm not going to answer your question, he leaves the place God sent him. He's sitting on the east side of the city at a vantage point, looking over the city of Nineveh. Again, I think arms folded, brown on his face. Let's see if God will kill these people anyway. In essence, he has quit. He's turned in his resignation. The prophet, the spokesman, the representative of God to the city is now watching the city, hoping that they'll die. That's why I say it's inferred that he quit. He quit his calling. What I think he could have done, what I think he should have done, is to stay in the town. I mean, if this many people have genuinely turned to God, Jonah, you're mad at them because they've been persecuting the Jews. Why don't you lead them to the fullness of knowledge? Why don't you instruct them in the ways of God? Why don't you carry out your prophetic ministry? Bring them up to a higher spiritual level, as did Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18 when they heard Apollos preach, and it wasn't quite right. And the Bible says they took him aside and explained the way of God more fully to him. I wonder how many Christians quit their calling because it's too tough because they have too many doubts, because they have too many disappointments. Ah, forget it, I quit. Ministers can do that. Back in 1945, when a young 27-year-old evangelist, people were just beginning to hear about Billy Graham, came on the scene and preached for Youth for Christ. Well, we know what happened. He went on to preach to hundreds of thousands around the world. If you were to live in 1945, you may have heard of Billy Graham, probably not if you were in Christian circles, but you would know the name Charles Templeton because it was said of Charles Templeton that he was an extraordinary communicator. One seminary president said he's the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. You probably also would have heard of Bron Clifford, it was said of Bron Clifford, at the age of 25, young Clifford has touched more lives and influenced more leaders and set more attendance records than any other clergyman in American history. Now, you've heard of Billy Graham, but have you heard of Bron Clifford? Have you heard of Charles Templeton? No, you haven't. You know why? They quit. Five years after that was written, Charles Templeton left the ministry saying he no longer believed in the claims of Christ. Four years after that, Braun Clifford died. He lost his family. He lost his ministry. He lost his life because of alcoholism and financial responsibility. In fact, the clergyman over in Amarillo, Texas, took up an offering to send his body back east so that he could be buried in a cemetery for the poor to be forgotten. Quit. I wonder how many students abandoned their work. They feel God's called them. They start going to... Bible school or schools of ministry or whatever. They're learning and then something happens. 
They're willing to cash it in. A friend of mine visited me when I was still living in California. Wanted to give me all of his books, his Bible, everything. I quit school. And the professors had been feeding him liberal thinking so that he didn't even believe in the Bible, didn't believe in God anymore. Wanted to quit. I wonder how many spouses abandon their marriage. And if there's one ministry we had to get right, that's it. There's one ministry we had to do right above all else. It's the ministry of marriage. People quit. I wonder how many parents quit parenting. They become spectators just sort of looking at the city instead of being involved with their children. None of us are called to be spectators. None of us are called to be perched outside of the city, skimming over the world headlines, shaking our heads every day as we read them going, bad world we live in. We have the only antidote. We have the only solution. We have the only answer. We can't quit. God is a calling for us. The fourth thing, the final thing that Jonah forgot is he forgot God's concern. You notice the questions that God asks him? There's a few of them. In fact, the book ends with a question. Interesting way to end a story. A question. The questions are meant to stimulate his thinking, convict his heart, show his values, his concerns are way off base. First of all, verse 4. After Nineveh repents and Jonah's angry, God says appropriately, Jonah, is this right that you're angry? You know, Jonah, here, here it is. You and I have seen the exact same thing an entire city turn to God. And I'm very pleased. And you are displeased. You can see the difference. God is not willing that any should perish. Jonah is willing that everybody should perish. So the question about values. Then in verse 6, God is very gracious to him once again. He prepares a plant, comes over Jonah so that it would be shade for his head to deliver him from the misery. Jonah was very grateful because of the plant. In Hebrew, it's, he was samach gadol, gleeful big time. Now, please look at this discrepancy in character. All of Nineveh turns to God. Oh, I'm mad. He gets a little plant. All right. I got a plant. Yeah? So what? So much so that when the plant dies because of the worm and the sun's beating on his little old head, just kill me, God. So God asks him another question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because of this soulless little plant? It is right for me to be angry. This is right. This is righteous anger. This is good. Even unto death. Now God makes the application. Don't miss it. The Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much livestock? The 120,000 he refers to are children, infants. There's 120,000 people who don't know the difference between right and left, which would make the population of Nineveh about 600,000 people. Jonah, you are so whacked in your values that you're concerned about the death of a plant that has no eternal soul. You could care less about 600,000 people, including their 120,000 children that have an eternal soul. 
Is that weird or what? Has he forgotten God's concerns or what? Have you noticed that sometimes people, especially who have very poor relationships with other people, can become so attached to things like pets or plants, their gardens, and treat it even better than they would treat a human being? And I'm sure you've noticed as a mark of our society that we're a society that talks about the right of animals and having a furless society. Don't hurt the animals. Upholding at the same time abortion. That's a whacked value system. Dr. Francis Crick and James Watson both won the Nobel Peace Prize for the discovery of how DNA interacts and works. These two scientists recommend that a baby not be considered fully human until three days after birth so that the parents could legally destroy it if it appears defective. How ironic. I say ironic because in Maryland it's illegal to ship pregnant lobsters to the market. In Massachusetts... The court has ruled that goldfish cannot be awarded as prizes because of the state's anti-cruelty laws. The same courts have upheld mandatory funding for abortion. Goldfish, people. People, goldfish. It's a $5,000 fine to kill an unborn eagle and five years in prison. All of these things make me think that if preborn babies were just animals, they would fare better in the courts of our land. It's reprehensible. It's a whacked value system. A nation that has forgotten God's concern. The church can't do that. Let's take it from the national to the personal level for just a moment as we close. Is your own plant and shelter more important than the souls of people in the world? Does the temporary comfort of your life mean a lot more to you than eternal souls? Now, before you answer that question, even in your own conscience, you better be careful because if we say, oh, no, 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 the souls of people are more important, then that should be reflected in our passions, our desires, our activities, our finances. The book closes with a question. It's really appropriate for any representative of God to think about. Maybe there's some plants that need to be removed. Maybe God will provide a worm to come in this year. Everybody's so worried about what's coming up in the next year with Y2K. (laughs) Maybe God will provide a worm to eat away that which we're trusting that we might trust in Him. Maybe you've met a Jonah, a prophet of God, a spokesman who's turned you off or scared you because he's forgotten these basic characteristics. Please forgive. Please forgive that person because this is not the heart of God. Even God's kids can forget some of the basics. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, don't be like the guy in the hospital. Forgot about the rope. God is throwing out a lifeline to you. Don't forget to hold tightly to that. Don't forget to commit your life to Jesus Christ if you haven't.
Let's pray. Father, we call to memory, specifically, your sovereign control in our lives. Lest we become frantic when it seems that we're not being cared for like we thought. We call to remembrance your compassion on us. Lest we become angry at you. You've done so much for us. We call, Lord, to memory your calling on our lives. We can't quit. Much more to be done. More areas to represent you in. We call to memory, Father, your concern for this world. Lest we become distracted by other things, our little plants and our little shelters. Help us not to make the same mistake. In Jesus' name, amen.